What's up, good people in podcast land? Welcome to Convene. I'm your host, Chris Penrose. Convene is a conversation series with a narrative arc. Since 2017, we have brought the creative community in Toronto together to dive into topics ranging from creative direction and visual storytelling to contracts, pricing your work, and space to create. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the audio from those conversations. On today's episode, we are sharing from Convene, B-side of the music business. This was a full day of workshops, performances, and panels taking place inside of Free Space in Toronto. Our keynote panel, The Deal on Deals, was supported by Factor Canada and was looking at the full spectrum of music deals that exist from development and distribution to partnership, 360, and more. The conversation was moderated by Eternia, one of Canada's most prolific lyricists and just a great human overall. It featured Alison Outhead of Six Shooter Records, Vivian Barclay of Warner Chapel Canada, and Tanisha Clark of Not What You Expected. Just a heads up, when people get passionate about sharing knowledge, sometimes they throw some explicit language in there. So there's some of that in this episode. Enjoy. It is really awesome to be here. How are you guys feeling? You feeling good? Thank you, Chris. That was very kind. Um, so basically, Convene Deal on Deals is exactly what it sounds like. We're going to be um, deconstructing deals. We're going to be explaining them. We're going to understand uh, what the nature of each deal is, what the pros and cons of each deal is, what artists can do and teams can do to position themselves for these deals. The nature of the deals that we're talking about is everything from publishing to partnership, distribution, development, 360s, and any other deals that come up in the conversation. There are so many. We probably won't touch on them all today because we only have one hour. Um, but be sure to, um, to have your questions ready because we will have a Q&A at the end. Um, and I'm excited that our panelists get to introduce each other today. It's a very collaborative effort here. So instead of me introducing our very seasoned and professional guests. By the way, I, I, I told Chris I was going to mention this. So this is probably maybe the first time we're having a panel of just people that know their shit. And it's not about a woman in the industry panel. This is a panel on deals, and these are people that know their shit. So I'm going to get them to introduce each other. Shall I start? You can start. Uh, right. So I am going to introduce Tanisha. Tanisha is a singer, a songwriter, collaborating in songwriting and vocal production and arrangement. She's also the founder of NWYE, Not What You Expected which is a label and recording studio here in Toronto. Uh, the label sets out to be a leader in supporting the development and sustainability of creatives to result in success through a focus on team building, music education, business development, and network growth. Thank you. And I am introducing Alison Altit, who is the Vice President International Business Development at Six Shooter Records. She began her career in 1985. Why do they put dates in things? I don't dates know. Dates <laughs> as, <a> <laughs> as a production assistant and completed a law degree in 1994. After a successful run in television, Alison was the head of business affairs for Outside Music and spent seven years with Factor as its Vice President of Operations. Welcome, Alison. Yep, yep. I am introducing Vivian Barclay. 
Vivian Barkley is the general manager of Warner Chapel Music Canada. At Warner Chapel, she works with a diverse roster of songwriters, including Julie Black, Michelle Montana, and Bare Naked Ladies. She currently sits on the boards of the Canadian Music Publishers Association, SOCAN, FemFat Entertainment, and the Toronto Music Advisory Council. Welcome, Vivian. All right, so let's get started. I just want to ask all of you, starting with Tanisha, actually, to briefly explain what deals you have experience with. You don't have to go into describing the deal, but just what deals you have experience with. So I have uh, experience working with production deals um, for producers, as well as artist development deals and management deals. Well, obviously, I deal a lot with publishing deals, but because I represent both uh, producers and artists, I look at a lot of label deals that my artists do and a lot of production deals that my producers do. So, and I have a fair amount of manager deals because they all send them. Uh, and for me, uh, I've worked mostly on the label side, so uh, I've dealt with, well, label and manager, so management deals, band agreements, um, uh, label licensing deals, exclusive recording artist agreements, international licenses, um, sync licenses, you probably do a lot, a lot of those. Of sync, yep. um, all kinds. Yeah. Which leads me to cutting to the chase. So what kind of money is available for artists out there and what kind of deals give you access to those revenue streams? Just, just, just off the top. <laughs> How do we get that money? <laughs> So there are tons of ways to get money in music, uh, depending on what you do. But the, the most efficient way to get money is to create product that is, is dope, that people want to buy. And to market your own stuff, like to really put your product out there to the forefront for people to see it, to be able to pick it apart, to be able to buy it, to be able to say they hate it, whatever it is, so that you get the conversation going. That's the easiest way to make money out here is to make a product, put it out. Um, and that is a form of deal that is a distribution deal. Distribution puts your music out there and markets it. Um, so you really want to start that process within yourself, I'd say, is the, is the easiest way to start getting that money. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, traditional deals that we're talking about do sometimes involve money. Um, you can get d money from label deals and publishing deals and record deals. That they sometimes come with money. Um, sometimes they don't necessarily. That's not necessarily what the person's there for. They're there for other things. So sometimes I'll do admin deals that don't involve money, um, but they involve other things. But I guess we'll get to that, yeah. So picking up on what you just said, I'm actually regretting now that, well, I'm not regretting it because let's go Raptors. This is my lucky shirt, by the way. But, uh, um, you know, it really, how much money you get and what kind of deal you do is really going to be about who has control. So I really should have worn my scissor shirt for that. But it's really about who has control. And so in the, in the record label side of things, there's kind of two big groups of, of deals that you might expect. And one of them is a license deal. And the other one is an exclusive recording artist agreement. And the big difference between those two is who has a lot of the control. Um, and so like if you do a license deal, when you do a license deal, that presupposes that you've already paid for your recording somehow or you, 
the label's going to pay for it, but it's basically going to come out of your pocket at the end of the day. But you're going to own your masters, you're going to own your recording, and you're going to license it, which means letting the record label have it for a certain period of time in a certain territory. And typically in those kinds of deals, you're not going to be looking at perhaps as much money if you go over to the exclusive recording artist agreement, which is a more old school kind of deal. And it's what they used to do, uh, was super, super common, probably up until the 80s or so. And the typical thing that a record label would do is it would essentially put you on salary, give you a honking big pile of money, which they called an advance. And, but they would own your masters like forever and ever, amen. So under those deals, you might see a lot more money up front, but you're seeing a lot less on the back end versus a license deal well, you might see less money up front, but you're going to see more on the back end. Thanks. So, Allison, actually, can you talk to us a bit about property and how the understanding of that is foundational to any deal an artist is looking for? Yeah, this is where I get, gets involved in. This is where I get super nerdy. So, <clears throat> everything that you do in the music business, almost, right, is either going to be a fee-for-service, somebody's paying you to do a thing, or it's going to be about... It's going to be about your property in the music, right? Intellectual property. We've all heard that term, right? So who here wants to take a stab at describing what's property? Like, what is property? What is it? Anybody? Wrong, but excellent response. Because something that you own. And that's exactly what I said my first day of law school when they asked me that question. It turns out it's not something that you own, so I'm stoked that you answered it that way. What property actually is, is it's a bundle of rights. So it's a whole bunch of rights that you have. And when you're in the music business, it's going to be the right to record a song, the right to uh, put that song out uh, you know, into the world to release the song, the right to make money from the song, the right to distribute the song, the right to reproduce the song, the right to copy the song, the right to blah, blah, blah. So it's a whole bundle of rights. That's your property. So in other words, property is defined not by like what you own, but what you can do with it. So in a label license, and by the way, all of those rights all together, that's copyright. Right? And whoever said idea, you can't copyright an idea. The idea is not the, the, the thing. Right. The, the idea, idea is great, but you can't do anything with the idea. Right. So to go back to my description of the difference between a license deal and an exclusive recording artist deal, in a license deal, you have the most rights right out of the get. get. So your property, the thing that you own or control is what we always say, own or control, you have the biggest number of uh, arrows, if you will, in that bundle of rights when you start out in that relationship with the record with the record company. Whereas when you do the, I don't know why, this side is the exclusive recording artist agreement side. When you go into that deal, you're going to hand all those rights over to the label straight from the get, and you probably won't get them back. But you trade, right? There's a, there's a trade. So you can go to law school now. Now you know what property is. But that leads me to a question that I'm just wondering, what is the benefit then to having the exclusive deal that you sign over all your rights? Because it is kind of six in one hand, half a dozen in the other, sometimes depending on your scenario and your situation, right? So why would someone opt for that? You know, honestly, like it happens both in publishing and record labels. You'd be surprised how many people don't want the control you're giving them. I'm always amazed at how many people just want the upfront check. 
So um, you'd be amazed. There's many times in history where even big artists have been offered, okay, cool, you know, when when the business started changing, companies would say, cool, you want to be in this with us together? Let's do, you know, let's do this 50-50 or let's, you know, let's do it a more balanced way where we give you back everything, but then you're going to share in the cost. Mm-hmm. The minute someone realizes that they have to actually pay for the shit, they're like, oh, no, that's not what we meant. We just want the big check up front. So, you know, it's a trade-off. It's it's what you, and it's, it sometimes comes down to where you are, like, you know, in my in my world, and it happens also in the label world, if you're a more established artist or you've already done a lot of this stuff on your own and you've already paid for a lot of this stuff, then no, an exclusive an exclusive agreement where you're giving up more of your property is is maybe doesn't make sense for you. But if you're a person that's maybe starting out brand new and you need a lot of development and you need a lot of investment to get to where you need to be, whether it's investment in making the recording or you know development or writing the song or whatever it is, and you haven't figured out another way to do that, then that system, then maybe that's the reason why you would make that. And to be honest, some people just want the bigger check. To uh, frankly, to, that's I've I, many times. To add to that, it also it depends on the artist that you are as well. Like yeah. performing artists versus like a songwriter, singer artist. Like when you're a songwriter, that you're writing the lyrics, you're then performing them, you're putting a lot into the song. Where there are some artists that strictly perform, they don't songwrite, they don't produce, and they're here, like you said, for a check and to do tours and the hype stuff. You know, so it, it depends on the type of artist that you are as well, what you're going for, and where you see yourself in in years from now in your career as well. Which leads me to, oh, go ahead, Alison. Well, I was just going to say, I want to make the point, too, that in the, in the, at the beginning of the recording industry and up until, really, the advent of digital technology, uh, it was, like, impossible for, like, just a regular artist on the come up to actually make a, a recording that was going to be of sufficient quality to actually put it out into the world. Those costs were enormous, right? So because the record industry had buckets of money and they were able to lock down, they were able to shut down access to studios, access to distribution, that's why artists going into those relationships didn't really have any negotiating power. It's like, that's what there was. If you wanted to be an artist and you wanted to make records, you were stuck with this recording artist deal where basically you were hired by the label, and they they essentially owned you <laughs> and everything that you did for a time. But of course, you know when when digital recording technology started to become more and more of a thing, that's when license deals started to become more prevalent because people then had the opportunity to make their records at a price that they can afford. And honestly, we can thank hip hop for most of that. Like that's that's where it comes from, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is common held belief, I think, that partnerships, partnership deals are the best deals, but it's very vague, like partner from what to what. Can you talk to us a bit, uh, Tanisha, you can start, about different types of partnership deals and what that means? Um, so essentially, it's, it's brand alignment, right? So when you're, when you're creating your brand, you, you, you wear clothes, you wear things, you participate in different brands, you listen to music with like a certain brand of headphones. Um, so it's, it's kind of just being aware about what, you, who you would want to work with that would align with you and also like complement your brand as well as make sense for the other person's brand. So an example that I can use is like, you know, um, some of the times, for me, for example, I love to wear running shoes. Like that's a thing for me. Heels are not a thing. This is a special occasion. <laughs> um, so for me, like running shoes, at first I'm looking at sponsorship deals, like, you know, like how do you align yourself with a, a brand like, for example, Nike? Like how would that even be a thing? 
Um, so really it's about like making it a part of your lifestyle and showing the brand that you are trying to partner with of why this is important for them to do as well as you to do. And this stems beyond clothing. It stems beyond anything. Any other business that you feel that you could collaborate with, it's about really positioning yourself and showing them what you have going on within your brand that would align with theirs. Um, ideas of this is it could be for anything. Like for example, recently we partnership with like Native Instruments for a bunch of like keyboards and different instruments that we use and sounds. Um, I manage a producer in the room named Blank who. She always created with native instruments like Roland and Tractor, and I, as a manager, had no idea what what the difference between these things were. Like I always saw them as like keyboards and like instruments, but for her, this was super important. So we were able to connect with with native instruments and get them a part of what we're doing. And these are things that matter because you you know you start off you're doing shows, you use things without even noticing that like you're using them. You know what I mean? So it's it's a matter of just lining yourself up with other people and, and situating them and helping them understand what you have going on. Um, and these can start off of with just conversations. It can start with, like uh, Allison was saying, like social media is super important. So you see brands all the time trying to like get brand ambassadors, you guys know, like influencers and all that stuff. You're aware of what these things are? Every single one of you guys are in the room are an influencer. So like any brand that you rock with, anything you wear, anything you think is cool, anything like that, when you align yourself with that brand and let them know that you're supporting it and why they should support you, why this is important to your lifestyle, this becomes brand partnership. Um, it obviously gets a lot more extensive like when you're going to collaborate with major labels. Maybe you're an independent artist. Um, there's a lot of times where it happens where artists will sign to like an indie label that has major label backing. Um, on the back end. So this does not mean that you're not an independent artist. It just means that you're getting support with your marketing. Uh, you hire people through third party to help you support with marketing or whether it's distribution or whatever it is that you might be lacking. So it doesn't take away from your brand at all. That's the point of a partnership. It's just more about like how does this thing add to me and how do I add to it? Um, and like what what helps align us? Like what connects us beyond just like these are shoes I like to wear or this is an instrument I like to use or whatever that is. So that's just kind of like how I see brand sponsorship. Thank you. Did you guys have anything to add to the idea of partnership deals? Well, I'll just, I'll just throw out that there is a, there's a kind of deal. You guys have probably heard of a 50-50 deal. So a 50-50 deal, some people call will sometimes call that a, a JV. So a, a Jonas Valanciunas uh, deal. That's, I have that right, right? That's what, that's what JV, no, it's joint venture. Let's go, Rogers. So a 50-50 deal, uh, which is a deal that you might do with a record label, basically says, okay, so we're going to kind of partner on this thing, and you artists, you're going to deliver to us your finished master or whatever. We're going to give you some money to make it or whatever. We're going to put it out into the world. We are When it starts making some money, we're going to take... 100% of that money that comes through the door to knock down the cost. Like if the if anybody had to go out of pocket to make this thing, it's going to knock it down, knock it down. And then after that, we will split the glorious net receipts or the net revenues. You take 50, we take 50. So sometimes those are called JVs and they and, or partnerships, and they can be. But the key thing to remember here is when you walk into a relationship with a record label, they are probably smarter than you. I know they're smarter than me most times, you know, and they probably know more about how things work and so on and so forth. So you always have to be a little bit mindful that a real partnership isn't going to work unless you both start out with the same amount of influence and the same amount of power in the relationship, which is why I always tell artists, don't get hasty for a record deal. Like, build up your clout, build, out your, build up your power, build up your fan base to the, the 
Like invest in yourself to the very nth degree. And if you can walk into a record label situation with like significant numbers, like what you're talking about, like clout on social media and all that kind of stuff, your bargaining chip is going to be a lot bigger. Then we're talking partnership. Vivian, earlier this week, we spoke about that. You said that, you know, somebody might come up to you or maybe all the time someone comes up to you and says, yo, I want to do a JV with you, which I thought you said Jay-Z because, you know, <laughs> those deals are deals too, the Jay-Z deal. <laughs> but the JV deal, um, you had some thoughts on like, first of all, you basically, well, you can elaborate further. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that was happening in publishing for a while where people would come in and want to do joint venture deals. And similar to what was happening in, in, in the label side, the slight difference on the publishing side is that maybe you'd have like one company, maybe it's a production company or whatever, and they have a whack load of writers underneath them. And they're coming in and they're trying to sign their whole either record company or songwriting camp and, or production company to a publishing company. And it, it for a publisher for a long time, and I'm sure lots of people still do them, and we still do them when they're right, is um, it makes sense because you're getting a lot of writers in one fell swoop. The, the problem with a lot of that is, um, you know, whether it's a late, what people like to run around saying, oh, I got a label deal, I have a label with so-and-so, and I have a JV with this publisher, that's cool. But what it means is that that part of the deal, that, that's now your job. So you are now the label, and all the things that a label would have to do, you would have to know how to do and actually do it. Same thing on the publisher side. Everybody's running in going, can we do a JV? Which means that what you're essentially saying is that you are the holding house for all these other people's property or rights. And so therefore, they are now looking to you to actually do the job and to be the publisher. So what I always say to people when they come to me and they start saying that stuff is I'm like, do you actually have the resources, whether in money and or bandwidth, to be what it is you're telling these people you're going to be? Because a lot of people like to gather rights when they hang out with people and write songs a lot. They're like, oh, these 10 mans in my studio all the time. I'm going to sign all these mans to my deal. I'm going to go over there and get another deal. Cool, that sounds good on paper. But if you don't actually have the capacity to do the work it is you are saying to these people you're going to do. The shit's going to go to, to high hell like real quick. And so what I, what I look at when someone comes to me and talks to me about that kind of stuff is I ask that question. I'm like, do you have the capacity to do what it is you're saying you're going to do? Because what happens inevitably sometimes is that we do our work, we give us the songs, we register them, we license them, we do what we're supposed to do on our side. We hand the check over to one person or one company and then these other 10 people that they have signed to them are depending on them to distribute the royalties properly, deal with them like a publisher, and do all those things. And sometimes they're not actually capable or even know what it is they're doing. And that sets up a really bad dynamic because... If you're a writer to this smaller company or to this other record company, all you think about is the big name above it. And then I, my phone's ringing going, well, I'm signed to Warner Chapel. And I'm like, you're technically not. <laughs> like, you know, you're technically signed to this person over here and we did a deal with that person. So for me, when people come to, to me with those kind of deals, again, they're not a poo-poo. Like if you have your shit together and your business is straight, then that's great. But if you don't have your business together and you literally don't know when we hand over the check, you don't have a business manager that's set up properly to then pay all the people that you're responsible to pay. I have a hard time with those kind of things because I think it's going to go sideways and then that person's going to be calling me freaking out. And I, I don't want to have that bad, that bad energy. Like it's not good business. So, you know, I think a lot of people... Went through, we went through a period where a lot of people just like to say the words, 
you know, I got a JV, I got a this, I got a that. They just liked using the terminology. And I don't know that they really understood that if you said that and you got a label deal, it meant that you now did marketing. You now were the radio promo people. You now were the publicity people. You have to take on all these roles that you are getting mad at the label for doing. Because you're like, I don't want to deal with the label. Right, but they did shit. So that's fine. Do it if you want, but you have to actually do the work. Right? And similarly in publishing, you can, you can be a publisher, do anything you want to do, but you have to actually do the work that those, uh, the bigger company is doing if that's what you're doing. So that's my only reticence about those kind of things when people come with those. I want to make sure that the person I'm getting in business with, the person that's here, actually is going to be doing right by what it is that they say they're going to do. Because I don't think at the end of the day it works otherwise. So Tanisha, you have your own indie label. You're a singer-songwriter. You founded your own in indie label. Can you talk to us a bit about uh, leading directly into that? So first of all, the roles that you do, and, and I know it must be, you had discussed earlier about how it was a little bit hard. People might not take you serious because you're an artist and you started a label. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, it's exactly what you're saying. A lot of it comes from the temperament of like, if you don't actually do the job that you say that you do, you can walk into a room and be like, I'm a manager, I'm, I'm this. I'm that, but it, it's really a lot of work. Like the crossover, the transition between being an artist is like, when you're an artist, it's kind of like free for all. Like you can show up to a session, you can write, you kind of like, you know, chill with your friends and like meet people and you network. Um, but it's a lot less of like, it's more like when you want to. When you want to record, you record. When you want to do this, you do that. Um, but for management, it's, it's a lot of like other people depending on you. It's a lot of like, like you said, if you're responsible for these jobs, then these are the jobs you're responsible for. And it, it's not like, well, I just learned management like this week. So like, I'll catch up. It's like the artist is looking at you like, what do you mean? Like, this is my career. This is my album. This is my shit. Like, what do you mean? So it's, it's a lot of like sitting behind your computer. It's a lot of time behind by yourself. It's a lot of like organization and using tons of apps and like scheduling. Um, it's the thing that makes it most worth it, I would say, is seeing the progression. So when you do get your stuff together, when you do get organized, when you do uh, finish filling out whatever portal or paperwork it is all night, you're like, all right, cool, that, that thing's done. And then you're on to another thing. So that's really where the reward comes from it. Um, my experience started off like I was an artist, so I just made music. I was song, I song wrote with other people. Is that the correct? Okay. <laughs> Um, and sang and just like did vocal arrangement and production. Um, but I would get into sessions and always just kind of be like, all right, like what are we doing with the marketing? Like how are we gonna promo this? Like what are we gonna do? Like I was always that artist in session and uh, like the feedback from, from some artists were just kind of like, all right, like you need to chill. Like I'm trying to do my artist thing and like you're saying a lot of things. <laughs> and, or it would just be like, well, like you're not Drake. So like why would this be a thing that we do? And so that was a lot of it in the beginning. But I realized, like, like Vivian said, I was doing the jobs. Like, I was still emailing people and figuring out how can I get booked here? How can I this? How can I get placements? Like, I worked with a producer named Blank who would send me beats all the way in, like, 2016. She has, like, a catalog of beats. And she would always send them to me and be like, hey, I want you to manage me. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't manage producers. I'm still figuring out how to manage myself. But, like, holler at you, like, soon. Um, and as I started to learn more and more and just realized that it, it really takes dedication and like really that commitment and organization, um, I said to her like, yeah, cool, I'll manage you, I'll figure it out. Um, and it, it really takes like traveling, it takes budget, it takes like 
this is your life. Like you've chosen to do this now. You're also in charge of other people's lives when you're in management and label. Uh, like I said, you don't get to look at the other person and be like, yeah, sorry, like I was tired or like I forgot or any of that stuff. It's just, it's about like getting things done on a constant basis. Um, and also like networking. There's going to be times where you don't want to talk to people and you have to, like that, <laughs> that is it. <laughs> like you have to go out there, you have to smile with people, you have to engage with them. Um, it's also about like networking. People throw that word around a lot as well. It's just like networking doesn't mean, okay, I met such and such today. And you go home and tell all your friends that you met such and such. Like it's about like keeping up with that person, like building a relationship with them, letting them know what you got going on, hearing what they have going on, maybe planning for the next time that you guys can engage and like have a meeting or whatever it is. Um, that's super important. Like the connections that you make actually have to connect. Like you don't just walk away like, dope, talk to that person. You talk to people all day long, but like you don't actually see the progression until you build meaningful connections with people. And be yourself. That's like the biggest thing that I've known. Like I have always been super like myself and I struggled with it for the longest time because like so many people would be like, well, no, you're just an artist. Like stick to that. Or like, how, like they just give you the squinting eyes. Like how is it that you know all these things type of thing? But it's access to, it's information that we all have access to. It's not, there's no secret plane that flew down and told any of these people up here these things. Like, it's just work and it's like learning things and you take L's and then you take W's and you're like, all right, cool, I can figure it out. Um, so that's really what, like, the biggest thing that I can say is really, like, be yourself and figure out what that means to you and, like, engage with people on that level. Like, don't, like, lower yourself, bring yourself down to because such and such seems cool on Instagram or whatever. Like, really build your brand to be a place that people will respect and then all things are possible from there. Thank you. Um, kind of switching gears, but not really. So we're talking about indie labels, indie artists, learning your roles, learning how to do what you do well. Another uh, concept that comes up often that we hear spoken through the, you know, through all of us all the time is keep your publishing, keep your publishing, keep your publishing. So Vivian, can you tell us basically what a publishing deal is and why that's different than maybe what people think it is? And also, you know, what does it mean when you have a publishing deal? Um, well, first of all, anybody in here a songwriter? So you're also all publishers, bottom line. So until you decide to, um, you know, sell it, give it, rent it, uh, trade it for a burger, uh, whatever, <laughs> you're, the, you're, you're the publisher. Um, why and a publishing deal and what I do, I represent songs and songwriters. And I represent them via various deals, some of which Allison have already talked about, similar, same thing in publishing. We either have co-ownership deals, co-publishing deals, or we have admin deals where we don't own anything, we're just representing um, your work and we are managing your work, for lack of a better word, administrating your work, and then we take a percentage of income for that. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time of their life talking about keep your publishing, keep your publishing. And if anyone's ever heard me speak before, I'm probably one of the few publishers that will question when people come to me saying they want a publishing deal, and I go, why? Like, why do you think you need a publishing deal right now? Because I think a lot of people look at publishers like they think it's some sort of weird service business. It's not a service business. It's no different than the A&R gig at, at a label. We are looking for people, and um, we're looking for them in different stages. Look, I've signed people as green as, you know, playing on the side of the street with their guitar, and you've signed people that have been in business, like Marshall Montana, who's been in business 40 years and never had a publishing deal. 
until now. So they run the gamut of when someone might get into a, into a, into a deal. Um, and people get into deals for different reasons. And so what I always say to people is like, you get there when you need to get there at the time that you need to get there. A publishing deal, like a half of your song is writer share and a half of your song is publishing. So that's the other thing. When somebody says, oh, you know, you know they took all my publishing or they took my whole song. Well, first of all, they can't take the whole song. It's only half the song's publishing. That's one, right? You don't lose the writer share and go anywhere. So there's no way for them to take the whole song. Um, that's the first thing. And so when we're talking about publishing, we're really talking about that 50% of the song. We're not actually talking about your writer share. We're only talking about this share over here. And in this share over here, we may do a deal that we co-own a part of that 50% of the song. And so your typical co-ownership deal in publishing would be a 75-25 split, 50% being the writer share, 25% of the publishing, so that's the writer will have their 75% over here, and they may choose to sell half of their publishing to an outside publisher, big, small, or otherwise, and they, they sell 25%. That's your typical co-ownership situation in a publishing deal. That's, that's pretty typical. Um, there can be other splits. There can be anything you invent. A deal is literally what you choose to make it at this point. Uh, an administration deal, none of the ownership changes hands at all. We're just administering the song for like similar to a license deal for a specific amount of time and we're charging you or we are going to take a certain amount of uh, percentage to do the work, basically. So there is no ownership transfer. Now I'll say this, you know, your publishing is like your retirement plan um, if you're a songwriter and it can be if you manage it well. And some people do manage it well and some people don't manage it well. And, and definitely I think it's, I think because historically a lot of people have not felt like they've had the power within record deals, what's happened is the rhetoric that because you've made a deal similar to what Allison was talking about where back in the day you didn't really have much of an option but to give over a lot of power in those deals where people felt like they could keep some of their power or their rights or their property is on the publishing side. So traditionally you always heard people say, oh, keep your publishing, keep your publishing. But that was typically why. You know, I've even seen artists who literally couldn't say no to a label because something was in the deal over there but they had the power on the publishing side and they would literally call their publisher and go tell the label no because they still had the power over their song, right? And so, um, you know, I do question people when someone calls me that's, you know, super early in their journey, and they're like, oh, you know, I, I, I want to talk about publishing. And I'm like, why? Explain to me why you think there's something to talk about right now, right? Because typically a lot of people are talking to me about, like, licensing situations, like license deals, and they're not there yet. Uh, to Allison's point, build as much value as you can, um, if that's the route you're going to go down, build as much value as you can maybe before you get into a situation. That being said, again, I also like to sign deals early because if I'm dealing with a, a artist or even a producer that needs some development, that I feel that we can be instrumental in putting the right people in the room with that person, maybe helping them to get a, a label deal if that's what they're looking for or to help them push along their independent product, whatever the case may be, we sometimes do get in very early in the, in the game. We're helping them fund those recordings. We're, publishers are doing way more than they ever have before. We're the ones paying for recordings nowadays. We're paying for videos. We're putting people on tour. We're doing way more investment on that end. And sometimes we're doing it fairly early in the game. So I think at the end of the day, it's a very individual thing. Some people come in and they feel like they need a lot of um, uh, 
help and partnership. And they and typically when people come to me in that situation, they always say the same thing. We're looking for someone to be part of the team. And in their mind, they've decided a publisher is essential in that space because they look at their artists that they're working with maybe as being um, a songwriter for themselves. Maybe they're a songwriter for some other person as well. They're choosing to do outside songs. And they look at the publisher as part of the engine to get them to that next point. And so that's fine as well. I think it just comes down to how you make the deal and what's the right deal for you. So to me, I don't think there's any wrong deal. It just matters where you are in your journey. Now, if you've already gone down the road and you're not a brand new artist um, and you have some value there and you're, you're, you're choosing that route to go, um, to, keep, to hold on to it for a little bit, um, I think there's also a sweet spot. We've also seen people who held on so long, collected so much of their money that was hanging out there that the supposed value that was in that catalog went away because they just waited just too long, you know, to make those deals. Um, so, I, 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 you know, you, ha you have to know and, and take good counsel from people you trust, um, not just your, like, your brother, your sister, or your mother. Like, talk to people who know what they're doing or, or know what they're talking about. And that doesn't always... And I, I love lawyers, but sometimes that's not always the lawyer because I've seen lawyers get people into deals just because it looked like the front-end check was going to be great. And I've seen lawyers talk people, even with me as a publisher, I've seen them talk some writers into some stuff up front that was a little heavy-handed, to be honest, and I'm, I'm quite surprised they let it fly. Um, so I think you, you, you have to be cautious, yes, with your publishing, because it is something that you can have as a legacy. I represent the guy who wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, it's a song that's going to go on for as long as it goes on. And um, his son manages his estate. And that's a real thing that happens in music. Um, and you want to be able to pass those, you know, those down to your family or your whoever if you, if you have it. And so it needs to be managed properly. Um, but a good publisher should be able to help you do that. You know, that's the reality. And, you know, there's... I don't, I don't know if there's... A, I mean, maybe there are bad publishers. I don't know. But I just... I don't think there's good or bad publishers. I think there's good or bad deals. Like, you can get into good deals. You can get into bad deals. But, you know, at the end of the day, this whole keep your publishing thing is a... It's a I don't know. It's a red herring to me. It's like, you know... But I think most of it comes from the fact that people assume that when you say that, they're selling all of their publishing. They don't own anything anymore. And that's not actually accurate. So, yeah, understanding helps. Um, yeah, yeah, understanding of what it really is. And I mean, and don't be afraid. It, I think a lot of people, when they get into these situations in rooms, like whether it's a manager or the artist themselves or the songwriter themselves, and you go to a label or a publisher or wherever it is you go, like, I, I can't stress this enough. There's no stupid question. Like, there is no stupid question. I have people who have had deals since they've been 16 years old and they're in their 40s, and they call me weekly to ask me something that, yes, I frankly think by now they should know the answer to. But... <laughs> But at the end of the day, if you don't know the answer, you don't know the answer. So ask the question. And most people will answer the question for you. I think it's way better to do that and act like you know what all of this stuff says than to sign something you didn't understand. And then 10 years later, you're like, what? That's what that meant? That's, that, that's nonsense. Like, literally don't feel bad that you don't understand every single word that's on the paper. And if you go to a lawyer and they're saying, yeah, yeah, this is what this means, or, you know, and they're just talking you through it, and you genuinely are reading it, and you still don't understand, stop them and say, I don't understand. 
Like, because I, li- I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people that said, oh, I didn't know that's what that meant. And, you know, in, in our world, the end of the deal says you got counsel. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can only trust that you did. And the counsel wasn't your cat. And you also can take time. Like, there's no rush. Don't ever let anybody tell you, well, you have to sign this in the next 30 seconds or else, you know, like, deals off the table. Like, read. Like, take it home. Study it. Like, like Vivian said, take it to a lawyer. Take it to people to read it over to really understand what's in there. Don't ever, like, sign things in, like, the first two seconds of receiving it. Did you know, uh, Vivian, that you have my publishing? Yes. <laughs> She's got my... I feel like I got the better end of that deal, to be perfectly honest. I wasn't there at the time, but I do. She I, wasn't I, see the, I see the file folder, trust me. I know where it is, so if you ever need it. But any. I just want to say while you're here, thank you so much. It saved my ass. It saved my ass when that, because this was about, a, this was in the late 17th century, I feel. Uh, it was mid-90s. I had put all my resources into my career, blah, 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 blah. Spent, paid for everything broke as a skunk and Warner Chapel came in and said we will buy your publishing and they did and it saved my ass thank you appreciate that happy to help Woo! happy to help and you know you know it's, it's interesting that you said that though because there's a lot of people go back to the whole like I'll never sell my publishing so Marshall was one that was a recent one but Gordon Lightfoot you know your your classic Canadian uh person who always held his rights blah 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 you know all of that kind of stuff he did a deal I guess I can still call it recently a couple years now with Warner Chapel where he did sell a lot of his catalog to us and yeah I'm sure a lot of people on the street were like whoa like how would he do that look there comes a point where you may decide this is not something worth managing for me and I and I have to say this especially in the digital world when it go back to one of your other questions about why would you even do a publishing deal yeah there was a point back in the day where you could manage especially North America on your own I have to say now, I don't know how people are doing that because the digital world is a different place, man. We got the first YouTube distribution we got from SoCan. It increased our paper count, our line count of, of, of uh, statements. We got 40,000 40, extra pages of statements, four zero. It only equaled $14,000. Forty thousand extra pages of statements because that's how micro all these uses are, and it's great. Welcome to the digital world. Great, we're making money off of it. But it's that's something that is ridiculously hard to manage on your own. And so the day and age where you could really cobble together your own thing in publishing, if you were being used worldwide, it's that's those days are are really not around anymore. And that's why you see more companies like the TuneCores and, and, and SongTrust. And there, there are a lot of companies out there selling essentially like a publishing admin 101 type thing because they realize that a lot of people are out there trying to do it on their own and maybe those people aren't being signed by publishers. The reality is that we're not going to sign every single thing that walks in our door. That's the fact. We're not. Like, we're not going to sign everything that walks in the door. We may not sign it right away. We may be looking at it for a while. Um, maybe it's just not right for where we are. Maybe you're just not right for a certain company. Like, maybe they specialize in one thing and you do another thing. Everything's not right for everyone. Um, but what I will say is some management of some kind at this point, if you are in the digital world, is necessary. It is almost virtually impossible to collect your digital money worldwide by yourself. 
I, yeah. I, I literally don't know how anybody would. And do I'm it. just going to jump in. So the assumption is, in the digital age, this gives artists a lot more access, and it gives them um, a better chance, I guess you could say. Like it's a level the playing field in a sense. But we were speaking earlier this week about that as well. And Allison, you had some thoughts about why perhaps it is way harder, not way easier. Can you expand on that? Uh, just the transition to like basically it used to be analog and records and and yeah, yeah. radio managers and and now yeah. the digital age yeah. what that means yeah well i mean i and you know what i'll totally back up what you're saying it is a complex universe out there and so because we're talking about copyright which is a set of laws and laws are specific to every country and every territory and so you know there's a there's a big chunk of countries in the world that are signatory to a thing called the Berne Convention, and that, that's where they all get together and they agree, okay, well, we'll do things a certain way. But there's other territories in the world where they, they don't have anything to do with that, and they do things totally differently. And uh, so, I mean, this is a complex situation. You know, you may not know, okay, well, look, I'm a SOCAN member. How do I get my royalties out of Japan? You don't. You don't. You know, because they they're not talking to each other. So you got to go to Japan separately and make that happen separately, et cetera, right? So it's complicated, complicated. And you don't know what you don't know. That's the joke about the whole situation. Most people don't know what they don't know. They just make an assumption. I sign on mm -hmm. the line over here, mm -hmm. and my money's going to mm -hmm. float back. And I always mm -hmm. find, I find it very interesting, like when I talk to someone who's had something else in the world or have had some usage and stuff, and I, and I start to ask these kind of questions to them, like, okay, what's where? Is there money in the pipe? Where are you collecting? Da, 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 da. And it turns out that chances are 90% of the time, the only thing they are collecting is their performance royalties. They've literally never seen half the other... They've never seen the mechanical, but they don't even know what they're. They're like, what? There's a whole other thing. I'm like, oh god, which is great for me because it makes it gives me a reason to sign the deal. I'm like, okay, good, something I can actually collect. So yeah, I think a lot of people don't know what they don't even know. And then from uh, you know setting aside the the royalties issue, I think the so the the, the 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 internet, you know, it's a fabulous, magical, complicated, brilliant kind of place, and it and it creates a lot of opportunity for artists to be able to find audiences in far-flung corners of the world that would, they would never have been able to get to before because of you know, digital streaming services and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the possibility that any one of you could put a song on the internet and you know, it ends up on Spotify. Next thing you know, you're you're you know you're huge in Kazakhstan. I mean, it could happen, I right? Was just thinking Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, right? Yeah, I was yeah, channeling you. I felt Kazakhstan. it. Kazakhstan. I was thinking Kazakhstan. It could happen, right? So that's amazing. Who, by the way, has better copyright law than we do in Canada? But that's go Kazakhstan. Go Kazakhstan. Um, so that could happen, uh, but you know, I mean, the chances of that actually happening is about the same as you getting hit by lightning. So you know, it can also happen. So. It's a big, complicated place. It provides a lot of opportunity, but it also means uh, you're in that same field with about 18 gazillion other people. So how do you figure out how to rise above? How do you figure out how to get hit by lightning? How do you figure out where to find your audience in that unbelievable complex universe? And, uh, you know, so this is where the power of... Uh, well, branding, digital marketing, all of those kinds of things, they can help you. But um, it is a, it, it's a, it is, boy, oh boy, there's a lot in there. Our, our partnering with companies, whether it's a publishing company, a label company, a branding company, 
an admin company that has resources that can tap into into to those territories for you. So it's while it's, it may feel scary sometimes to deal with something that seems so far-reaching and encompassing, you have to look out at where your usage is. And I think sometimes people are surprised when they look at their um, their metrics and and look at their data and see what where they're. I remember there was a point where Daniel Caesar was really trending. When I'd look at all the things, he was trending a lot in Indonesia. And at first, I thought it was kind of like a joke or some made up thing. Like, I'm like, did they buy a whole bunch of bots in Indonesia or something? Like, this made no sense to me. Like, when I say his numbers in Indonesia were high, they were like sky high in Indonesia. So I was like, all right, let me take a chance and say, maybe this is real shit. So I literally hit the guys up. I hit up Matthew and I was like, hey, FYI, you're huge in Indonesia, just so you know. Like, you're huge in Indonesia. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, yeah, you guys are big in Indonesia. And um, they eventually, probably not just on me, they probably checked their own uh, data. And they booked a tour in Indonesia, and the shit was sold out because they were actually big in Indonesia, like huge in Indonesia. And they, like what the random place they went to for like three tour dates was Indonesia. Um, we have ten minutes left, and then we're going to open up for questions. There are so many deals I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to talk about, but everything that's been discussed here is very important. I want to talk a bit about, and Allison, you can start leverage how an artist can leverage themselves, um, you know, directly so that when they go to the negotiating table, yeah. they have something to negotiate. You had yeah. spoken a bit with me on the phone about commercial points yeah. versus legal points in a, in yeah. a contract. And then also, um, specifically, you had mentioned about maybe buying services as opposed to going the contract deal route. Can you speak on those things? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about going in, about going into, like, be, be ready when you, when you go looking for a publishing deal or a record deal, or basically at any time when you're going to start diluting your bundle of rights with a partnership with somebody else, the more you understand about your own business and the more you are able to galvanize like, and, and show that you have a fan base and you've got people out there, the better position that you're going to be in. Because uh, artists in the room, your currency is your fans. Like, you may not have a red cent in the bank, but if you've got 100 fans, you've got 100 fans. That's awesome. You can turn that into something. So your whole job as an artist is to be awesome at what you do and do everything that you can to build your fan base, one listener at a time, one showgoer at the time, you know, one Instagram follower at a time, whatever it is. That's, and the more of that that you can aggregate and consolidate, the better situation that you'll be in when you go in to negotiate your record deal. And then um, you asked me about what's the difference between legal points and commercial points. In a deal. So this is a fun thing that people don't often think about. But when you go and do a record deal, they're going to hand you a piece of paper and they're going to say, this is our standard template. This is our standard deal that everybody does. This is our standard deal. And you go, okay, and then you sign it. No, no. There, don't do that. Uh, with legal agreements, I think I've done that. Legal agreements and record deals and stuff. There is a whole lot in there that is standard in the sense that it's like you are going to be looking for certain clauses, certain terms of the deal. But within those certain terms, there are going to be commercial points that are negotiable. And by that, I mean, for example, there's going to be a section in there that says we will pay you in advance so that you can go and record your album. So the language of how that's written in the deal might be kind of standard, but that actual dollar, how much is that? That's a commercial point that you can negotiate. And the more fans that you walk in with, the bigger your numbers are, the bigger your cloud is, the more money you can probably get out of them if that's what you need. 
Don't take money that you don't need, by the don't way. Don't take money you don't need. Don't take yeah, it's your you. money. It's your money. It's your just money. a loan. You're going to end up paying for it on the back end regardless. You're always in a better negotiating yeah. position if you took less money up front, recoup, and then you're always in a plus position. Right. Right. You will never take more money than you need because right. it will give you more clout because chances are you'll recoup faster yeah. and you'll always be earning. If yeah. you have to go back and renegotiate something and you are already yeah. a lot of money in the yeah. hole, your power is yeah. gone. And this gives me a glorious opportunity. Thank you for setting that up. This is a fucking fantastic alley-oop right here. Just like the game of basketball, we're trying to get to the net, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to that net receipts point. So the less that you take down out of the front, the faster you're going to get to the point where you're actually making money out of net receipts. And that's an important Defining what net, re net receipts is is probably the most critical point of any record deal that you do, and it's the one that a lot of artists really overlook. And what I mean by that is, remember I said before, uh, in, in uh, like say a 50-50 deal, they're gonna say, okay, well we're gonna pay for this, that, and the other thing. All of those amounts that the record label shells out for or the publisher shells out for, that and, goes- And by the way, I'll say this, because we're using the terms publishing company and record company, Please understand we need anybody that's trying to make a deal with you. Yeah. So I don't I don't care if that's the biggest record company, the smallest record company, or the guy around the way right. who's like, I'm happy to function like a record company, which is perfectly fine. Everybody can start a record company in here. So again, when we use the word record company, please don't think we're only talking about the universals, the Warners of the world. Anybody that's claiming they're going to do a deal with you about your recording or your publishing, these things apply to. Right. And yeah. Talk about the net. Right. So here's what the net is. So there's going to be a clause in your deal, in any deal that you do, that says at a certain point, once the recoupables have all been paid for, we will share the net 50-50. Okay. So the, the only question that you need to ask there is how do we get to that point? What amounts are you, record label or publisher or whoever the other party is, what are you going to be taking are you going to be taking, for example, are you going to be, you're going to be recovering my advance, marketing costs maybe, you know, uh, advertising costs, radio plugger, you got to talk about all those things, agree about all those things, and actually have that spelled out in your deal so that you know exactly how much money they're going to be taking away from you before you start sharing the rest of it 50-50. That's really important because I know a lot of record labels they may, they, like they'll have a, this is our standard deal. And their standard deal doesn't even explain what net receipts actually means or net revenue actually means. If this thing crosses your desk, it stinks. Don't sign that deal. You gotta ask them very specifically, what do you mean? Define net, what does that mean? Critical. So we didn't talk about 360 deals. I don't know if you guys wanted to hear about that, but the summary is they don't really exist that much anymore. Is that the summary? They can, <laughs> they can but they like, can. They can, uh, but you know, a lot of the times 360 deals don't include publishing anymore because I think a lot of, especially the biggies, realize that, um, not all of them, but most of them realize that they weren't doing the job of a publisher. So they, there really was no point in them for getting into that situation. That being said, I still see deals with passive amounts in it where there's a passive amount of publishing that's going in some of these deals. That's the most bizarre thing to me because they're not even saying we're going to do anything for it. They're just saying we're going to take a percentage passively. And if you go and sign with 
our sister publishing company will give you a discount on the passive amount. So for me, those are fascinating deals. Like I'm really not into deals where people are taking percentages for jobs that they don't do. Look, if your record company or whoever it is that you're getting into a deal with truly has a good merch uh, arm of their business, then great. You know what I mean? If they have a good artist service team and they actually do good work and make good merch and market it and have a store and they actually do the work, great. And you feel good about that? Make a deal about merch. Fine. But especially for me on publishing side, the likelihood that those people are good at publishing is very low. Very, very low. So I don't like those deals. And, yeah. The, 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 so I was just going to say the key problem with those 360 deals, like whenever you see a deal that says, we're just going to take 20% of everything that you do, Everything. If you find 10 bucks on the street, we'll take two of that, right? Everything that you do. The problem there is that what if they suck at that? Then you can't fire them. You need to be able to fire them if they suck. So at least if you're going to do those deals, at least if you're going to do those deals, the, the thing that isn't their core business, whether it's merch, publishing, touring, whatever it is, find a way to build something in there that says that if they don't do something with it after a certain point, that you can fire them. And, and one thing I took away from the conversation today and also when we spoke earlier this week is if you're really, really passionate and good at doing something, for example, you were really passionate about marketing and about branding and about these things as a singer-songwriter, then by all means, like, try your chops independently. But I think in my era, um, it was really important to just be indie and do things yourself. But what I took away from speaking with both of you is that if you're not really, really, really good at doing those things yourself and there's a lot of hats that you have to wear, it might make more sense to sign with a label, whether it be an indie or a major or a publishing or et cetera, if they're interested, if you're that good, and, and get them to handle a lot more of your business, take a cut, and you will get a lot more business. It's no different than a manager who finds you business and because they're taking a cut, they are finding you a lot more business than you may find yourself. So as, as artists, some of us are really passionate about business and some of us are not. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's important to not leave with a black and white understanding you know, before or after this event of, well, this is good and this is bad. And I think that's been one of the main things we've been deconstructing here today. And I, wanna... but I also think that to your point, the managers, the managers have been doing a lot of that bridge work. There are a lot of managers out there who are not just doing you know, old school management. They're really investing a lot into the people that they work with, whether they're producers, art artists, songwriters, and they are filling in their, um, their teams with people that can help A&R things, that can help market records, that can. So I'm seeing the managers I'm seeing these days, they're not just being managers. Like Corey that manages Murder Beats is not just a manager. He's out there doing a crap ton of stuff. So it makes sense that whatever deal they have, you know, if there is a space and they decided to take something away and not do a, a big deal over here for whatever reason they choose to, they're at least filling in the gaps as a partnership over here with their manager. So I think there's middle grounds that you can get into. It really isn't black and white. Yeah, the biggest thing about all the whole do-it-yourself mentality is like build your team yourself. Build your platform yourself. That's what it means. It doesn't mean don't work with other people. It doesn't mean like figure out who works for you and what works for you. But the whole point about it is, is really understand your business. Build your platform yourself. That's just kind of, I think, what... what all of that means, like the whole own your masters, own your publishing. It's just about being in control of your business, understand who's doing what, why they're doing it, how much they're getting paid for doing it, and just keep that understanding. Once you have that understanding, you won't feel weird about discussing money with other people, or you won't feel weird about like discussing opportunities with your management or with your lawyer or with whoever is in that position, because you'll understand why they're there and, and why you need to discuss it with them. So, Which is a perfect segue. Thank you. Um, any questions from the audience? We have, yes. 
Check, check. Just shout your... Oh, check, check. I was going to say, do you have a big voice? Hello? Cool. Uh, hi, my name is John Marco, uh, artist manager. Uh, question for uh, Vivian or Allison or anyone. Um, what is your experience with... You said you were touching on other deals that we haven't been able to touch on. Uh, single deals and artist development deals. Single deals with labels? Or uh, just independent with label. Um, look, I mean, again, I, I mean, Allison, you can jump in here too because you probably do more label stuff, but I've seen a lot of these deals come to me from my writers and some artists and stuff. And frankly, like, here's the thing I've been saying a lot lately. You know, a lot of people for years spent a lot of time vilifying, especially the major labels, on their deals and how heavy-handed they were and that kind of stuff. And... To be honest, the day and age, and I'm, again, I'm not saying these deals are perfect. They're not. You know, again, to Allison's point, there's a standard. And if you don't push against the standard, yeah, you might end up with a deal that looks kind of funky. But at the end of the day, those deals had to change and move in order to, to, to fit with the times, and they have. What's interesting to me, having seen 50 million t different types of deals come in with people, is that the smaller companies, and I do mean really small companies, it's like we're back to the wild, wild west. Some of the things that I see in some of these like single deals and, and like really small deals that people are doing are very heavy-handed with some percentages that are so out of control that it's like next level. So... I, personally, I don't have a problem with a single deal if it makes sense and it, they don't necessarily own it forever or again it, it it comes down to what's right for you if that happens to be a songwriter's main song that's going to be what would be the crux if they wanted to have a bigger deal with somebody maybe not that person and then you've just now given your biggest song to one company forever maybe that's not the right thing to do i don't have a problem with those things i think it just comes down to the individual and what it is that they need to get done. Maybe Allison, but a lawyer is definitely yeah. key. Important. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe Allison can speak to the single deal, and I know that um, you do a lot of artist development, so you can speak to that as well. Yeah, so I wanted to just say, I think if somebody's coming at you with a single deal, it's probably because they're not ready to make a commitment to anything longer term, yeah. right? Which actually might be awesome for you, depending on where you're at, or it might be terrible, depending on where you're at. Uh, because, you know, it's like dating before you get married, you know, which is probably a real good idea, you know? Um, I'm just saying, it's probably a good idea. That said, when you're looking at a single deal, I think, to Vivian's point, the critical thing is, what if this thing is a hit? Then what happens? So you want to be very careful when you're looking at that piece of paper that if there is some traction, if this thing gets some traction, that you are hanging on to as much back end as possible and or that you're not committed to actually getting married to this party. Because I've seen deals where they will kind of slide in a full option, a full album option that you Under don't... single. Yeah. Right? That you don't know is there. So what I mean is you like, oh, I think I'm just doing a deal for this single. But then you look down there and there's a, you know, if this, if this single actually, you know, if, they're, if, if streams exceed X or sales exceed X, then we will have the exclusive right to option a full album on terms to be negotiated at a later date in good faith, or it'll actually spell it out. But look out for that, because you might be actually getting into bed with them. Which so. basically means you went out on a first date and you didn't know that you'd have to, that they could potentially they, yeah. lock you down without like, now, now I Now I gotta marry. Right. I don't even and like you. Don't you. Want to, and you don't oh. even want to marry that person. Um, Tanisha, artist development, can you speak to us about those kinds of deals? What's important, what isn't? 
Yes. So artist development really comes down to what's important to you and like planning because there's a range of like development deals that labels could offer you. Some labels idea of development might be like, I'm going to throw you on 10 shows and like see how you make it out or don't make it out. And some labels like not what you expected. Uh, we have artists on stage, like training on stage, doing rehearsals, really dissecting their brands. We do interviews with them. Um, we really are a family to them and really help them understand contracts, help them set up publishing meetings if that's where they're at. Really help them to understand, like with conversations like today, where they're at in their journey and at what point what will be appropriate. Whereas some people's idea of development is is completely different. It's just about like you know how many followers do you have? Like do you have a huge following on YouTube? Like you know, so it all depends on, like, for you, what your plans are. So if your goals are like, yeah, I want a million streams on YouTube or across all platforms or whatever that is, and I want to do 10 shows this year, then development with whoever you're partnershiping with should look like, yo, I want to do 10 shows this year and I want a million streams on YouTube. So how do we do that? Like, what are the steps? Like, who are you going to be shopping the video to or whatever it is so we can get there? Um, but in the process, it's really just working on yourself. So it's, it's building your knowledge, it's studying information. And it's also not looking at your label to teach you everything, like, or your management, or your publisher, whoever it is. It's not like, okay, cool, I've signed to you now, so like, shouldn't you be like, telling me everything possible? Like, shouldn't you be doing everything and you're just kind of standing there? Development or even signing a deal is like the first day of work. Like you want to be on your best, like, you know, show up on extra on time, be learning, reading all the signs in the building, even though, you know, you don't give a shit about those signs, but you're just like, all right, this is a new building. Like, that's really what it's about when you're working in development. It's about putting forth your best and really understanding what you're getting into. Um, so for, for me, like I said, development is really understanding an artist, building that relationship, building the trust with them, understanding where they're at now and where we want to see the product go. Um, but for other people, it might be like social media. It, might, it could be a combination of the two. You know what I mean? What so, would be a fair expectation from a company or a label that's signing someone to an artist development deal? Like, what are they looking to get out of it? Um, so it's deliverables. Like, same thing that Allison was talking about. Whatever's on that paper that you should... It's all compromisable. So, like, if you say, like, yo, this is the stuff I want to do, and, and then your label's like, all right, these are the things we want to focus on, at the end of that transaction, you should both find a balance of these are the things that we're working on, and there should be no... So, like, if you're in two months in or three months in or whatever, and, and you're like, yo, I haven't done any shows, I haven't rehearsed, like, I don't have studio time or whatever was in that arrangement that you guys were supposed to do and it isn't happening, at that point, you can turn around and be like, well, these are the reasons I'm unhappy or these are the reasons that... I think that things should be different or whatever that is. Um, but it's all open to suggestion. Again, like everybody's going to develop from a different point and in a different way. There's going to be different things you should work on as an artist. And there's going to be different things that the label feels are important to each artist. Okay, we have another question. Thank you. Tanisha. Uh, hi, uh, I'm TK. I just wanted to ask a question. Um, I guess this is one of the deals we didn't speak about but it's the artist and the manager. And you, Viv, you mentioned that the, art, the manager sometimes, they're now doing more than what their manager is supposed to do. Well, no, I think a manager needs to do what they need to do for that particular artist, to be frank. Like, you know, whatever that particular artist needs is what, is what that manager, if you're signing on to, to manage that person, and that's what you need to do. What, what is your top three of what they need to do? And then also the deal they sign with the artist, traditionally it was 10, 15% of what they get. That's what has been thrown around. Is that something which is still out there or does it increase 
after a certain number? Or I'll let how the manager ask to answer that one. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the things that you should expect from your manager, again, comes down to where you are in your particular journey. So if you are brand new and your aim this year is I want to, you know, I go back to exactly what you said. I need to be on this many shows. I'm going to try and finish recording an EP and then I'm going to do X, Y, Z. You have a certain amount of time. You've had the conversation. That person's out there trying to help you get those things done. And if you get to some point and you don't have any movement on that, then maybe that's not what's happening. And I think it's very different than if you were to walk in and you were managing someone with a very established business. Um, then you're managing that business. So I think it depends on exactly where the person is. And that's going to be different from a brand new writer to a brand new artist to an established artist. Like It's very, very different. It's also different according to genre as well. Oh, yeah, totally. So, like, you know, like rappers or, like, if you're, like, a rock star, you know, you'll have a different method of management. Your management's going to deal with you a different way. It's also the type of management you have. You may have a management team, so that's comprised of, like, three or four managers managing one artist or managing two artists. So it's all about, like, the vibe that you build amongst your manager. That's why you always want it to be somebody that you can have these difficult conversations with and you can bring contracts to or you can bring to another room or setting and you, you feel good about it um, and they feel good about you and vice versa. There is no real, like, this is what you should be doing. You should be making progress in the music industry. Like, you should be putting out records. You should, if that's the plan, like, you should be sticking to a plan. But there is no, like... A, B, C, and D answer. Is, is 15% still standard, or is that lo- like, what's it looking uh, like now? It gets higher. <laughs> yeah. I always said that a management uh, manager is like basically being married, but without the sex. Like, you really have to vibe like that with each other and click. It's like, if you travel with this person, can you stand them? If you have to Well, for some people, maybe there is sex, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. But um, it's really, like, it's, it's, it's a weird balance. It's between, like, a relationship and, like, this is, like, a parent-child relationship. It's, it's strange. I just wanted to say, here's how you negotiate a management deal. You sit down and you, you sit with the person who wants to manage you or whatever, you want to manage them, whatever the case may be, and literally write a list. These are all the things that I want you to do for me. Mm-hmm. You can't do this thing here because I'm already doing that all by myself or you don't have any skills or I'm going to hire somebody else to do it. But make a list of all the things. Decide on whatever the points are. It's going to be 10, 15, 20, 25. Anything more than 25, look out. Mm-hmm. 15, 20 is usually about in the pocket. But to your point about it's like a marriage, think of your management agreement as a prenup. Because what's even more important than what they're doing for you while you're together is how it's going to go down if and when you break up. Mm -hmm. And this is really critical. People never think about this. So you want to make sure that you have in your full understanding of this situation, what happens if we part ways? Like, is like let's say your manager got you uh, a lifestyle branding deal. They got you. A, they got you a shoe. So you're you're on a shoe. You're doing a shoe. You got a shoe. So at what point is that manager? Because you break up with them, you're never going to see them again. Are they going to keep taking money out of that shoe deal or what? You need to foresee all of that stuff and put in that agreement what we call a sunset clause which is basically a piece of business where you say, okay, from all the deals that you did with me, maybe, for example, in year one, you're going to take 20%, like you're getting right now. Year two goes down to 15. Year three goes down to 10, and then we're done. 
that might be something that it says in that. So think of it like a prenup agreement. We all hate to imagine that we're going to break up one day, but it happens. All right, next question. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, everyone. Uh, hi, my name is Seth Dyer. I'm an artist, producer, and engineer. Um, my question was more so for Vivian. Uh, you spoke of publishing companies kind of doing, uh, some publishing companies doing more like uh, financing projects or putting artists on tour and stuff. And my question was, have you seen um, them do distributing and marketing? And if that's the case, if publishing companies are doing so much more, uh, where does a label fit into that? Why would you require a label? In a sense. Well, for the most part, we if you see publishers doing that stuff, it's out of necessity. It's not necessarily because we we think that that's the, the next business model. It's just we may very well believe in an artist so much, and we've signed them, and we've tried to help them get a deal, and no one's no one's riding the the the, the train with us. And so sometimes you you'd go the extra mile. You're like, cool. I, then I have to like I have to take this train down the road a little bit more because we believe. But it doesn't necessarily, we're doing that for a point. We're doing that so either they, they um, have enough clout to go out, go out on their own or make a different kind of license deal later or maybe uh, they'll get some interest from a bigger label. Oftentimes we're not in it to not be a part of our core business. Our core business is our core business. Um, so we're, that's not necessarily what we're doing. A lot of times if we get involved with masters, we're doing it more from a sync perspective. We're not often getting involved with the master business just to randomly be in the master business. We're doing it because it it, it might add to our sync business, like it's helpful there and thus we may take something on there. But um, no, I mean, it just so happens that we're trying to facilitate a, a, a means to an end. And, you know, I think everything is negotiable, but I, I would not say that necessarily... There are some. I know some publishing companies that have recording arms to them as well, and that's a that's a different that's a whole different thing. But they treat that other business like a complete different thing. They staff it different. They they bring in people who are label people and understand marketing and 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 distribution and and all the things that they need to on the label side or the master side of the business. They're not just randomly doing it as an ad hoc of something like. No, I'm not a I'm not a a a record marketing company. I don't do that. So if I were to one if I were to tomorrow pick up and decide to get into that business, I'd have to hire th that skill set or, you know, contract it out to somebody to do it. But it, it's happened. It definitely has happened. And I think that label publishers are definitely getting more involved with projects in different ways than we, we would have before. Like Warner Chapel, we, we were involved in the early days with the musical Hamilton. We basically helped to finance it. So because we believed in the project. And so, you know, Sometimes, most times in, in a situation of a publishing world, those kind of musical theater things come to us after the fact. In this situation, we did something very early on and we were there from the early days and part of the genesis of it. So it, it also showed us, oh, you know what? What if we have other songwriters who have ideas in their head about some musical theater thing that they want to do? So we made it known to some of our songwriters, hey, we, we did this over here. We now have a skill set. We have people that are more experienced now that can be able to help you. And we're now trying to do this thing with some of our other songwriters who may have a random musical theater thing in their brain that they've always been thinking of doing, and we're partnering with them to do some of those things. But it's not always a given. I think it has to make sense for whatever company is getting into whatever businesses they claim they're getting into. It has to make sense, and they have to have this, the, the bandwidth to do it. Do you, I, I strongly believe people shouldn't just be out there saying they do things that they don't necessarily do or don't know how to. Yeah. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for your information tonight. Um, as an independent artist new to the game, 
in the future, I really want to have as much control over my brand and my property. But sometimes I have a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and understanding when am I going to fill this role and that role. So would it be possible for each of you or one or two of you to kind of draw out like a timeline of when certain roles come into the play? Like when does a lawyer come into play? When does a manager? I mean, I think a lawyer comes into play anytime somebody hands you a deal that needs to be looked at. So that could be very early on. Like that yeah. could be one of the first relationships you do have because chances are you need the, ma the lawyer to look over the manager deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So your, your lawyer might be very early days. But I, again, I think it comes down to where you are and you know, then you maybe added a manager to the mix. I also a big, if you've ever heard me speak, I mean, I don't wanna you know, give away my age, but I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> And um, if you've ever heard me speak, I'm big on people learning how to manage themselves for a while before they pick up and decide they want a manager. I think there was a, we went through a period again where everybody was like, oh my God, this is my manager. They just liked to say it, yeah. right? They just literally liked to say it. And it's like, well, what are they managing? How much mm -hmm. money do you make? Because if she's saying that she's managing people, she has to eat, right? <laughs> so what is she managing? What is she getting 15% of what, $10, right? So you have to have something for them to manage. Or you do it yourself. You learn. I, I know for myself, like, I was one of those artists, to be honest. I was probably, like, 17 years old, and I hired all these managers to do a bunch of things, and nothing happened, And obviously. And so I went to them, like, what, what, so what do you do anyways? And they were just kind of like, well, you know, I'm a manager. And then <laughs> that was that. And I kind of left super confused. Like, so if you're a manager, like, how come I'm not famous? Like, what happened? And so I had to really, like, fire them and then take years to actually learn management. Then I was like, oh, like, this is what a manager does. And from there, we were able to shop music and land, like, actual placements that are, like, platinum at the moment. And from there is, like, you see the work and you see, like, now I'm a manager and I actually make 20% of, of my artist career. But, like, now I understand what the role was for. And at that time, if, when I was looking at my manager, like, so why aren't you doing anything? I wasn't making any money. I didn't have any placements. I didn't have any deals to manage. So realistically, right. that, that relationship was, was not a thing. So is it yeah. almost <laughs> like um, you'll know when you get there kind of thing when it comes to those? What I was going to say is <clears throat> don't be hasty. Uh, and it goes to what I was saying this whole time about clout about you building up as much of your business as you possibly can. When it's the right time for you to take on a manager is when a kick-ass manager calls you. That's when it's time, when they come to you. If you're out looking, who, anybody, anybody, anybody wanna manage me? Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think this is gonna support what you were saying. Anybody who shows up in your, you know, in your world and says, I want to manage you, and you're an artist who's never done anything, that's somebody who's going to bullshit you. Like, that is. They don't know what they're talking about. You have nothing. And you can't mistake your talent, because, like, as an artist, we get super sensitive and offended when we hear, like, you haven't done anything. You're like, what do you mean? I stayed up all night making all these songs. You didn't hear the music? Like, play it again. Like, that's not, that's not what we mean by, like, you haven't done anything. It's just about, like, actual deals. It's about actual, like, placements. Do you have, like, an uncontrollable amount of streams that is, that is making your audience, like, super wide? So, like, if you go to a show, you'll be kidnapped because, like, you have so many fans. Like, that's what they're looking at. It's, it doesn't mean that you're not talented. It doesn't mean your music doesn't bang. Yeah, like, doesn't mean call me and they're like, oh, I wrote 350 songs. That's cool. <laughs> Does has anyone ever sang any of those 350 songs? That's cool that you're prolific. That's really cool. That's nice. That's great. But has anything happened with one of those songs? Anything at all? 
like anything on your own, somebody else doing it, you got a placement, anything. Like, because people always ask me, oh, oh, you just look at like numbers on Instagram and this and that. No, I think, you know, what's interesting for me, like Warner owns a company called Sodatone. It's an A&R discovery tool and they literally aggregate all sorts of info from all over the place. No, I'm not going to look at the, t- the top thing on my Sodatone list and go, oh shit, that has a 96, you know, uh, rating. I'm going to go sign them tomorrow. No, that's nonsense. What it's basically saying to me is a lot of times for me, it validates what I'm already looking at because Allison's point is correct. When somebody says, how do I get to you? I'm like, we will find you. <laughs> Trust me when I tell you. Trust me. And now it's like back in the day when we said that, we were kind of bullshitting slightly because we can't be everywhere at all times. Let's be real. We can't be everywhere at all times. But now with the wonderful world that we live in of data, it's like we're everywhere at all times. There is a lot of data that comes to us and there's a lot of data that floats to the top and there's a lot of data we can't ignore. So even though I may live in a city like this that's very musical, if you know me, I'm out all the time. I think I have my air to the ground. I have people that tell me shit. Managers call, people call, everybody calls. You know, I think I know shit. And then you'll look at the data and there's some random person you've never heard of with like shit tons of streams and shit tons of fans. You're like, what the fuck is this person, right? And then you have to go do your job. Right? But I'm not going to sign them just because they're on the list. But oftentimes I find that I'd be looking at somebody and then the data comes in and it validates what I've been thinking. So I'm like, okay, we're on the right path. right? But you have to, people will either stand for you. Like I have people will call me who have nothing to do with these people and they'll call and go, you need to check out X, Y, Z. So people will find you. And I would say to you that if someone is rocking up to you, I agree wholeheartedly with these two ladies. If someone's coming up talking about I want to manage you and there's nothing to manage, beware. It almost sounds like you'll know what you need when you need it because it will be very evident and people will be talking to you about it. And yeah, and right? we, <laughs> I loved what you said, but we, we will feel the disturbance in the force. Yes, yes. We, we will know. And sometimes we're late. Look, sometimes, sometimes we're late. Like, I'm not going to lie. There's times where we shouldn't have seen the disturbance in the force and we didn't yeah. see the disturbance in the force and it happens. We all miss, we all miss shit. We're never going to all get shit and everybody's not for everybody. But, you know, you, you hope that you get it together at some point. And that doesn't mean that you don't reach out to people. Like, I'll say this. People hit me in my, I, I don't like it. But people hit me on Instagram. People hit me on LinkedIn. Somebody Sorry, sent me Vivian. a 20-song link on LinkedIn yesterday. What the, what the fuck? LinkedIn? <laughs> like, people hit you any possible way. But I'll tell you this. And there's also people that tell me they don't know how to find me. Let me tell you something. A woman called me last week, and she wanted to make copies. And I said, what kind of copies? She said, photocopies. I'm like, okay. And so I said, can you send me that in an email? She said, I don't have email. I said, what? I said, she goes, yeah, I'm into school. I don't have email. I said, she goes, nobody in the district has email. Right? I'm assuming she's Amish, Mennonite. For just, just from the location, I'm going to assume that. If she doesn't know, if no one has emails, I feel like that's where she's from. She's from a Mennonite community. But this woman found my direct phone number. Right. Wow. Right? I don't know what technology she used. She didn't, she didn't call Warner. She found my direct phone number, a woman with no damn internet. So you can get to people. There's ways to get to people and get them what you need to get them. I still don't know how she found me. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Hi, ladies. Thank you for being here. It's, it's been very inspiring for me, especially to hear women talk as much as we say, you know, they do their thing. It doesn't matter whether they're women or not. I've been involved in the industry almost 20 years. I took a break for five to six years because I got my heart broken. The industry is fucking hard. And uh, I'm 40, by the way, proud to be 40 and reinventing my career. <laughs> proud to be reinventing. And I'm, it has taken this city to rebuild my confidence in getting back into the music industry. 
Um, anyways, so I did something silly. I signed some really good jams to a boutique label out of Germany about five, six years ago, and I gave them my master use license for perpetuity. I want to get those songs back, and I know I should talk to a lawyer, but four incredible minds here. I could talk to you first before I go to a lawyer. I want to get those songs in a film and TV because I'm so proud of them, and they launched me in Europe. I left and lived in Sweden for five years, and I just had to get out of Canada and try something else. So now I'm back. What do I do? How do, do I just get a lawyer to get my, my... Yes. Now that I'm serious and I'm like, I, wanna, I want my music back. Yes. Well, what, who, who's a good lawyer? Who's a good lawyer? I've been away for so long. Well, I, I mean, I can't recommend anybody right here, right now, but yeah. talk to me afterwards. Okay, thank you. Because I mean business. Like, I want to get back in. And I used to do it all. I used to work for Bruce Allen. I used to work for Maximum Jazz, which was distributed by Universal. I learned to manage my own career before I became an artist pushing myself. And it was exhausting. Before social media. Right. <laughs> can, can I just... I don't, I don't know you, and, and I, yeah. like, I feel that this is a really emotional thing for it you, is. and I 100% get that. Can I also recommend, at the same time that you're stressing about over how to get your old masters back, focus on the new ones. That's what I'm doing. Right? Focus on I'm that I'm moving back stuff. home with my parents. Make some new music, right? Because if you were great before, you are going to be. You are great now, and you will be great in the future. And and you know, don't get don't get anchored down in what yeah. happened before. Look forward. Get forward. Yeah, I'm definitely doing that. Thank you. Good. Thank you. We have another question over here. Are there any? Yeah. Um, hey guys, uh, thank you so much for this. This is amazing. Uh, my name is Lewis, and I'm an Afro-hip-hop, Afro-beat artist in Toronto. And um, you mentioned something about uh, when you're signing a deal with a label, and sometimes they say we can do... Uh, let's say their main thing is like distribution and all the other stuff. And then they decide, you know what, to put, uh, they decide to put other things in the contract. You were mentioning that uh, if they say, oh, we can do this with merch, or we can do this with that, that. Um, I was wondering, what is a good probation period that you can put in the contract when you're negotiating? You Before, for the extra stuff? yeah, for the because you were saying that you need to put it somewhere in the in the deal if to be like, can. yeah, if you can. I, I personally, again, me personally, like, you know, it's hard for me on the outside to say this to artists. Artists are going to do whatever they they feel like they need to do to get their business done and close the most important part of the deal. So. Um, again, I think it's more important to see what their business has been like in those other elements that they're talking about. So I don't think it's a bad idea to talk to some of their other artists or ask them to tell you about some case histories and you know show you some numbers and what they've done with the merch business or the touring or whatever that other ancillary stuff is. I don't think it's wrong to ask those questions and try to figure out for yourself if what they're doing actually has worked. And if it has worked, then, then fine. Just make a deal that makes sense for you. Um, you know, that's really all you can do in that situation if that's, that's their... I, I hate using the word standard because nothing's really standard, mm. but you know what I mean? Like some people will say, oh, that's our standard thing. This is what we do. And it doesn't need to be about a probationary period of time. You could think about maybe there needs to be uh, like a performance metric, right? Where mm -hmm. you say like if they're going to take on your merch, you know, design, delivery, sales, whatever it is, you can say, okay, well, for me... Uh, you, you need to decide in advance, what are you going to be happy with? And it might be, I will be happy if I sell $20 worth of merch 
to one quarter of my audience or something like that, right? And literally put that in the contract and say, if you meet this minimum benchmark, we're good, we'll keep going. But at the point where you fall under it over, say, a period of time, then we're going to terminate the deal or we're going to renegotiate the terms, right? And oftentimes those kinds of performance metrics will have like a minimum maximum kind of thing. Like, or there, there's lots of different ways to do it. But if you're concerned about getting into bed with somebody, and for sure, check out their track record, like find out who's worked with them and all that kind of stuff. And if you're still concerned about whether they can do a good job, I would say perform, like put in a performance benchmark. If you can get over this line, I will love you. If you're going to fall under this line, I'm not going to love you. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you guys. That's actually all the time we have because the game starts in 30 minutes. Oh my God! And everyone just rushes out the door. No. Um, thank priorities. you. We have priorities, you know. Thank you, ladies. Um, I have learned a lot, so I know everyone in this room has learned a lot. It's been an honor to learn from you guys. And if I can be so bold, I think it's true that if you guys signed up on email... Convene will uh, be following up with some resources that these ladies are providing. So there are a lot of things that we did not touch on today, and hopefully some of those resources can touch on that. Um, so please make sure you check your email and look for um, Convene's email in your inbox. Is that fair? Is that still happening? Right. And I'm going to invite Chris back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find out more about Convene at watervision.com or on Instagram. That's W-A-T-R Vision. Convene is founded and produced by myself, Chris Penrose, through Water Vision Creative. Production, editing, and sound design of this episode is all done by Martin Agnon. We are going to keep these conversations going, so we will connect again on the next episode.